Welcome to Keeping It Green, a podcast for ornamental plant professionals and enthusiasts with hosts Margaret Pickoff and Tim Abbey. Hello and welcome to Keeping It Green, a podcast from Penn State Extension for ornamental plant professionals and enthusiasts. I'm one of your hosts, Margaret Pickoff. I'm a horticulture educator with Penn State Extension, and on each episode, I'm joined by my colleagues on the green industry team as co-hosts. On today's episode, my co-host is Tim Abbey. Hi, Tim. Hi, Margaret. How are you? I'm doing well. Great. Um, On today's episode, we'll be joined by Art and Abe Van Wingerden from Metrolina Greenhouses. Before we get to our interview with Art and Abe, we'll start out with a little check-in about what we are seeing or working on at this time of year uh, in February. And here in Philly, we've got a gray, cold day. How about you, Tim? Well, the sun finally came out here, which we haven't seen much of uh, recently, but um even though it's sort of a slow growing season time, uh, it's, you know, at least for us an extension, it's busy with like the, it's the winter meeting season. So it's either you're hosting an educational program or you're going to speak at a colleague's program. So it's um, kind of busy time, but for different reasons. Yeah. There's not a whole lot of recovery time between events at this time. Um, And it's an exciting time of the year. We're also planning for the, um, you know, when the weather starts getting nicer and uh, planning for the season ahead. Um, a lot of us just got back from the Mid-Atlantic Fruit and Vegetable Convention, um, which usually Penn State Extension educators uh, make up a good number of the speakers at that conference, but we also help to um, run things in the background. So I was helping out with a with the audiovisual for a couple of those sessions and got to sit in on some neat um, sessions of topics that are kind of outside my normal day-to-day topics. So I learned a lot about uh, nematodes that um, impact vegetable production. And I, I didn't know there were so many different types of nematodes and they all have different, uh, I forget what their mouth parts are called. The stylus. Yeah. <laughs> You want and, to become a nematologist now and do taxonomy? I don't think oh my so. God, I don't think I liked them that much, but it was <laughs> really interesting. They all have different types of these um, st- styli. Is that? The, I think that's the, plural. And uh, they use them, you know, to position themselves and insert it and you know suck things out or do whatever they do to um, wreak havoc <laughs> on our plants. But uh, that was a cool session to hear about. Anyways, um, yeah, we're always learning new things. We're always uh, running around giving talks at this time of year. You never know what you're going to pick up on the way. Um, So, yeah, thanks, Tim, for being here. And let's bring on our guests for today. Um, I'd like to introduce Art and Abe Van Wingerden, who are co-CEOs of Metrolina Greenhouses based in uh, Huntington, North Carolina. Uh, Or is it? Huntersville. I have Huntersville. 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 (laughs) Sorry about that. Well, welcome to the show. We're so happy to be speaking with you guys. No, glad you could have us. Uh, We're excited to do this. Uh, It's always fun to uh, talk to business with different facets of people in the business from the agriculture side to the uh, academic side to uh, all the other sides. So we're we're excited about this. Great. Thanks for joining us. 
Um, and so you two are our brothers. And um, from what I understand, your parents um, were the founders of the company and uh, you're, it's still a family run company. Um, so just to start out, can you give us an idea of what you do for Metrolina Greenhouses? Yeah, I'll, I'll let Art give our little history. I, uh, but but we're we both are the co CEOs. Uh, I handle uh, what I call the demand side, so the sales, marketing, IT, in store merchandising. Art handles all of the supply side, so the procurement, the growing, the uh, um, operations, and things of that nature to make it all happen. Uh, we supply uh, plants to uh, three big box retail uh, chains, uh, Walmart, Lowe's, and Home Depot. We do about 1,400 of their stores across 20 states. And so if you go from uh, Savannah, Georgia, up to uh, Philadelphia, over to Pittsburgh, down to Nashville, down to Huntsville, Alabama, and then tie that line to the Florida state line, that's our shipping area that we ship. And we employ about... Uh, uh, 850 full-time folks and then about 500 seasonal folks uh, when the business is going crazy. Right. So we both immigrated from Holland with our parents. So we uh, we have four other siblings as well that two of them are involved in the business. But we, uh, we started here in 1972. So we started in Charlotte. We moved to Huntersville in 1973. And we've been growing ever since then. Uh, you probably saw on our website, we're 8.2 million square feet of uh, environmentally controlled greenhouses, and we have two locations. So we're here in Huntersville, North Carolina. Then we also own a location in York, South Carolina, about an hour south of us. And there we do a lot of perennials, trees, shrubs, things that uh, enjoy more of the outdoor climate than they do the in indoor controlled climate. Were your parents... Um... Like, did they have an interest in plants, like maybe from their like their parents, like exposing them to plant material or when they got to the United States, it kind of gravitated towards something like, hey, you know, there's an here's a business niche that's not being filled in your area. And we'll get into that. Yeah, I, I think my yeah, Abe said it a little bit earlier. Our father was one of 16 children. His father was one of ch 12 children and they were all in basically all in the greenhouse business uh, Believe it or not, out of the 12, I think eight or nine are still living of my grandfather's generation. And there's 14 still living of my dad's generation. All 14 of them uh, are in the greenhouse business today. Wow. So, and they're just they're anywhere from Colorado to Connecticut to North Carolina to all, you know, all over the United States. And we all compete against each other, but we all share ideas common mm -hmm. things that we see going on in the industry and how, how can we make the industry better? That's one thing you know, I'll, I'll definitely say my dad and his brothers were part of is what do we do to make the industry better every day? Yeah, and I think we, you know, it's a, a rising uh, ship lifts all boats or rising tide lifts all boats has always been kind of one of the thought processes. And there's a lot of vertical integration to Tim and Margaret in the way we do the business. So I have an uncle in the seed production, Express Seed Company out of Overland, Ohio, uh, an uncle in the greenhouse uh, uh, building business, uh, Van Winger and Greenhouse Company in Asheville, North Carolina. Uh, and so all different pieces and parts of the industry, people kind of found their niche, similar to Art and I finding our niches here at the company. Uh, we can't both do the same thing every day. Uh, we got to bring different skill sets from a leadership standpoint to the company. And and we kind of learned that from our uh, parents. They said, hey, if we're going to have all these kids, they better do different things. <laughs> if everybody right. wants to do the same exactly. thing, we're going to be in trouble. <laughs> so like for your each individual backgrounds, um, like educational backgrounds, do you consider yourself to be like plant people and you got into it because of the horticulture or 
did you have more of like a, a business interest, like when you were in school and kind of like, oh, you know, this is going to be great. I can kind of integrate into, you know, a family business. Yeah, Tim will go with yes, I'll give my part and Arch can give his. <laughs> and it'll sound dramatically different. Uh and so I uh, you know, I worked in the business we all did when we were kids, just like everybody in the uh, farming business. The kids have to work, it's part of it. Um, we were just building this business in the late 80s. Uh we we both worked in the greenhouse. When I turned about 16, I was like, I don't want to do this. Uh <laughs> so I was uh, first in our generation to go to college. Uh went to college, got a business degree, then went to grad school at Emory University in Atlanta, got my MBA there. And then I went off and worked at uh, Procter and Gamble, uh big CPG company for uh 11 years. Uh lived all over the country, uh Detroit, Michigan, Bentonville, Arkansas, anywhere there was a big retailer and a big customer I kind of went to. Uh, and so I really had more of an interest on the business side. I wouldn't consider myself a green thumb per se, but it's funny now in the company, I've, I've just gotten an interest in the last uh, 15 years more in the genetic side. So I do a lot more of that work uh, with our breeder partners just because I have an interest in that, but just learning it really the last 20 years, to be honest. Yeah. And I'd say as Abe, you know, I, from the time we moved here to the States, We've been working in the business. Uh, I took the opposite approach when I turned 16. I asked dad if I could quit school so that I could come to work full time. And he was like, no, you got to you got to graduate high school and college. So I made it through college a whole three weeks. Uh, that was enough for me. And then I started working full time here. I enjoy operations, construction, fixing problems. That's that's what I like doing. I would not say I per se have a green thumb. But I could go I could go around much like Abe can as well and go, OK, something's wrong with that plant. What are we doing to it to make it better? Uh, so I, I enjoy much more the operations side of the greenhouse between our two locations. And that's what I like doing. So just think, to get a ahead, sense Marty. of the, the scale of this, because um, I was able to you know watch a couple videos before this interview and actually see the. Um, at least the uh, the Huntersville location, um, which I think um, is it true? It's the the largest single site heated greenhouse in in the country. It's at two two hundred acres of greenhouse, continuous greenhouse, um, and is it? It's the biggest one story building in yeah, the United single, States. A single largest single story heated building in America. So we have two hundred acres of indoor heated space in Huntersville, about 30 acres of outdoor. York is the exact opposite. We have about 200, 225 acres outdoor and about 15 to 20 indoor. So between the two locations, we grow on about 450 acres of land with the plants. Huntersville, we turn the space. So we have a plant in the same area about five times a year. In York, if we could get one and a half to two turns, we're very happy with it just because it's more outdoor. Yeah, and I'd say, you know, Margaret, uh, we we always say people tell us we're the single largest single story building in the U.S. And we've had our county tell us that the uh, the three you can think of, uh, the Boeing plant in Redmond, Washington is 7.4 million square feet. The Pentagon is 5.6 million square feet. And then the, we're 9.2 million square feet. So, wow. uh, yeah, so, <laughs> just uh, yeah. you just got that. that I'll tell you, every time I see that, uh, I'm always <laughs> amazed at it because and you can Google the other two, but we we don't Google as much, I guess. But uh, but yeah, that's uh, the nature of the business. And but. I'll tell you, when uh, our mom and dad started, their goal wasn't to be this size and this scope. Uh, they're ju we're just trying to grow quality plants 
And if we could get, what was our 25 acres was like 12 the, acres. Dad, dad, when he started, yeah. was like, if I get to 12 acres, I'll be set. Yeah. <laughs> and he's not alive today. I passed away in 09, but if he saw this, he'd be like, what are you doing? <laughs> <laughs> but it was when in 2009, it was ready a large scale. Uh, but then we added on an acquisition in 2014 to Arch Point. Uh, we bought Stacy's Greenhouses in York, South Carolina. And then we've just grown organically. So there hasn't been sort of this magic moment. Uh, it really has been, if you think of those 200 acres, two to three acres a year over a 50 year period. And it just, uh, you know, you don't feel like we're like expanding at a crazy level uh, uh, year over year. It's just been nice organic growth as we build our customer bases, as those three customers have gotten bigger into this business. And those three customers over the 2000s built so many new locations uh, in the market area we cover. Well, it was cool in the video to see um, because this is like obviously a massive building and it seems like the staff gets around on motorbikes and and regular bicycles because to walk, you know, from one area to another is like a pretty hefty walk. Yeah. <laughs> so that productivity of... would be negligent if everybody would just walk. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. The, our, how many miles a year do we put on your scooter? I mean, you know, oh, I you put know. about 2,000 miles on a scooter a year. That's, <laughs> yeah, that's yeah, actually it's... low, if you can believe that. Yeah. And you, you do the math equations, you know, about five miles a day, if not up to 10 on most days. Uh, and But it's not just whizzing around, too. It's, it's stopping, talking to people, working with folks. It's a big part of it. Uh, now, my mom is 72. She still walks around every Sunday. And then is really nice enough to uh, text us and uh, pictures of things she doesn't like in the greenhouse. That dad wouldn't be proud of. So we still have those those Sunday night. You pick up your phone. You're like, oh yeah, we got to work in those things tomorrow morning. So so we're we're a mid sized corporation. We have 800 full time employees. We'll ramp up with 500 more seasonal. But our mom still has her finger on the pulse at 72 and uh, make sure she knows that we know she knows. Her office is right beside mine. Yeah. Oh, that's amazing. Uh, the one thing that, uh, I mean, other than when I was, again, on the, on the website, just, again, the, the scope of what you do, but the, the thing that uh, really was attractive to me and interesting was the sustainability um, measures that you have in, um, including like your water reclamation, the energy work, uh, the, re the plastic recycling and the biocontrol. I mean, I know that's, those are all broad topics, but um, could you kind of just comment on them, like kind of how they came into being, if that was um, kind of like ingrained in you, like as a family thing that you wanted to do that, or was it kind of like some of over time is kind of like market driven, like, Oh, you know what? I think this might be something that could save us some money if we did this. Yeah. And I'll give you uh, two pieces. I'm sure Art will follow up with some uh, either examples or further, you know, our dad's kind of core concept uh, is called innovator stagnate. Uh, and I think, you know, a lot of people know Metrolina who are in the industry know us for innovating with robotics and automation, automatic transplanters. Some of the stuff you'll see uh, around a lot of that was uh, birthed or at least revolutionized through my dad and his brothers uh, over the years. But when we look at innovation, we think that innovation goes across our data metrics, that goes across the way we treat our employees, the way we operate a business. And one of those is sustainability. And so you, you mentioned our four pillars. You got them spot on. Uh, and so, but we've done each of those in the realm of they're also cost-saving measures. So it is a nice balance of we're in the green industry and we have to do what's right. And we got to keep this place, both this place and, and, and our area around us sustainable because uh, we have, we're around neighborhoods and they like to keep their eyes on us and what we're doing. Mm -hmm. uh, but no, in all four of those areas, there is, there is clearly an environmental element 
of our long-term longevity around chemical use and water usage and, and all those elements. But there's also a bit around uh, cost savings we generate out of most of that too. Yeah, and I'd say the uh, you know, the first one I'd look at is how we heat the place. So we do it with wood chips. So two thirds of our wood that we get is waste that comes out of woods where everything was 12 inch caliber or less they used to leave. They grind that up, send it to us, and we burn it. The other third of that wood is pallets that used to go in landfills. They grind them up, take the nails out of it. Now, why do we get into that? Uh, at the time that we decided to do it, natural gas was at $18 a decatherm, and they said it was going to $30 or $40 a decatherm. So we can burn the wood when we're done for roughly $4 a decatherm. So it made sense to do it, but it also makes environmental sense to do it as well. So the wood chips that we get all come within 50 miles of our location. So, and we have more than we can burn. I would say the wood chip suppliers, they get a little anxious during you know, May, June, July, and August, because we're really, we're not burning then at all. Right. And we're just storing for the winter is what we're doing. And every one of those four pillars that you talked about, I could tell you, you know, I could give you a two to three minute rundown on each one of why we did it and then why we continue to do it as well. Yeah, and I, I look at it, it's just like with plastic recycling, we didn't come up with that ourselves. I actually learned that through one of our retailers. Uh, they were throwing away the trays at store level into their dump bin. And somebody was in the, uh, the, the Research Triangle Park in Raleigh, North Carolina, a very environmentally friendly area. And, and they did an analysis of their dump bins. 30% of the waste in the dump bin behind this retailer store was plastic trays and other waste from the garden center. And this is at a big box retailer, which has a lot of different things they could throw in there. Uh, we were already shipping to those stores. So the carbon footprint, we're shipping carts to the store and taking back empty carts. That's our model. So they just put all the empty trays and leftover plastic onto those carts and we brought them back to our facility. So no carbon footprint in bringing those back. And now we can reuse those trays. So we eliminate that trash expense for the retailer. We are able to reuse those trays and it's good for the environment because less of those trays go into a landfill. So it's this beautiful uh, triangle of uh, activity that that the way all sustainability projects ought to be done because if you don't have some element of cost savings, your your energy to do it becomes less year over year. If you yeah. can show benefit at all three levels, uh, you got a much better chance of making it a long term project. And Art, we've been at this for seventeen years now with our retail partners, so we were doing it before it was cool, so to speak. So, yep, yeah, that's that, again, I, I commend you on that because. Um, you know, I, I think all of the all of those are important, but I like I particularly like for me like the water conservation. Um, you just never know what um, you know a year is going to be as far as like drought, and not just your area, but wherever you would pull water from. And then having worked a lot of my work wasn't necessarily my career with nurse or with greenhouses, more with like nurseries and you know with overhead water, and you see how much waste there is where you know it wasn't retained and it just kind of ran off into neighboring streams or down into stormwater. Uh, so I, I thought that was very interesting. And part, uh, part of the water. Team, uh, you must have been our original team when we bought York, South Carolina. I think you just explained that facility in 2014 when we bought it. And Art <laughs> can tell you the work we've done there and where we're at today. Yeah. And I just say here in Huntersville, you know, you drill wells, you're going to get hopefully 20 gallons a minute if you're doing well. So part of the water reclamation is necessity. You know, we're, we're going through a million gallons of water a day, but also when it rains, you know, every bit of area that we have, most of it obviously is impervious. The water's got to go somewhere. 
So we capture that water. We have 250 million gallons of water that we can hold in our ponds. And then we just keep reusing that water. We're not using the water table. And like Abe said, the place we bought in South Carolina, their wells, we were getting, you get two, 300 gallons a minute. So everything was done overhead, like you were saying, Tim. And we've changed that over the last 10 years. We've built ponds there now. We do a lot of stuff with drip tape. So instead of sprinkling overhead, your mums, we used to use 2 million gallons of water a day when we first bought the company. Today, we're using six to 700,000 gallons of water a day in York, you know, just due to all the water, different water conservation things we've done. And we've uh, built a retention fence around the entire facility, so it doesn't go anywhere. It goes all back into our ponds. Uh, again, uh, going into a stream's bad juju when we get that, but you got to have a place to put it too. Uh, and and we've, I'd say, our initial investment in York was more so in uh, 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 getting the facility more sustainable before we started expanding there for all those reasons about where the water's going, chemical runoff, things of that nature. And one of the other um, big issues for the green industry, and that would, to, to me, where you use that as pretty blanket term for our podcast, so it would be, you know, like grower production like you, you know, tree care, lawn care, even though we don't do too much uh, turf stuff on this podcast. Uh, one of the big issues is labor, uh, you know, finding it and keeping it. And, you know, compared to a lot of the companies that like, you know, Margaret and I interact with, you know, 800 full-time and then you're seasonal. I mean, to, to me, you're a big company. You know, it's not like you know Walmart or whatever. How many employees they have? Um, how how do you find labor and how do you keep people? So I'd say labor the general to our local market. So obviously, we have 850 full time employees. I'd say 750 of them are local employees. Uh, where we really struggled probably starting six, seven, eight years ago, was getting a seasonal labor force here. So during our spring rush, we were having to increase our labor force by six, seven, 800 people. And getting people to come in to work for 30 days, 60 days, 90 days, 120 days was pretty difficult. Because you know, they, they, everybody wants a full-time job. That's, that's really what people want. So we've utilized the H-2A program with the government. Uh, and that's why we're able now, we bring in four to 500 H-2A laborers to help us through the seasonality of our business. But when we need a full-time person, we're always getting from the local area is what we're getting. Uh, and we have, we've not run that well dry. I, we, we still are able to fill the positions that we have. We also look at the work that we do. Like Abe said, our dad's thing was innovate or automate or stagnate. You know, you got to do one or the other. So we've automated a lot of the processes that we do. And we look at work and go, okay, what's the day-to-day -day work? Is that drudgery? Is it not fun? Is it not something that's uh, interesting to people? Because you got to get people to enjoy what they do. So we try to take a lot of the menial tasks and go, how can we automate those things to make it better for people to work? Yeah, and I think, you know, we call it the, the jobs people hate to do, but bring automation and technology in to resolve those. But make sure your team knows they'll be the one running that machine. So it's a higher paying job, a higher technical job. You know, you can't have it like, we're going to cut out 10 people because of this transplanter. It's no, we're going to, we're going to, uh, we're growing as a company. That efficiency allows us to invest in new growth. That new growth leads to new jobs. And uh, we have a lot of 20, 30 year employees because they've seen us uh, keep that promise and make sure we do that. So we just continue to add. The other thing, uh, you know, we went through a phase in the early 2000s where like, hey, we're going to get to $250 million in sales. 
Uh, and we said, I think, was it Art 2025? We're going to get to yep. 250 million in sales. So built this great goal, had signs everywhere. It was wonderful. Uh, well, we found out we got there six years early. Uh, this was a few years back. And we we're like, wow, we should be celebrating. We get in front of the team, celebrate the number. All I see is a bunch of tired faces and people don't look very happy looking at me in art. And, and you realize that it's not about a number. You There's got to be metrics and they're important, but you got to have a world-class employee experience. And you, if you don't have a world-class employee experience around training, around benefits, around things uh, for family care and things of that nature, you're not going to make it long-term in any business. And I think agriculture sometimes tries to take a, hey, that's not us type thing. Uh, but this is just about basic care for people. Uh, this isn't about some crazy thing we're doing on benefits any different than most uh, mid-sized companies are. But you have to tell people and tell them constantly that people are your number one resource, number one. And number two, you have to build a world-class employee experience that they operate in. So they feel like if they want to move up, there's training available. If they want to move up, there's a path to it. And I think beyond the H2A program, that's been the hidden secret sauce we've had to uh, build our team. Yep, I would agree. Yeah, I think with employee, I mean, again, I've never run a business, so I don't know any of this, know any of this firsthand, but when they see that you actually care about their work, that they invest themselves into it, that um, even though it's not their family business, particularly if they stay there, the years start adding up, it becomes their ancillary family. You know, it's it means something to them to come in and work for you and and you get to retain them. They don't, they don't leave. Um, right. And that's why you put 2000 miles in your scooter every year. So you can see as many of them every day as you can. <laughs> well, it's important. Got... Now, it, those it are is. important things. We can sit in our office and come up with great ideas every day, but if we're not hiring and retaining great people, those great ideas are not going to go anywhere. Right. So, so we, got employee, we got one employee who's been here 47 years. Yep. So he's oh. retiring. He's retiring in June this year, but you know, he, uh, he came here when he was 18 Worked for the summer between his high school and college years and then decided not to go to college and has been here since then. Yep. Wow. Um, I did want to ask a, about some of those um, efforts to automate. And I know that um, your father was really instrumental in designing, um, for instance, the, yeah, the transplanting machine, which um, I and a number of other horticulture educators from Penn State, we were able to see that um, in in person down in North Carolina. Um, and I, I'm not exactly sure which, you know, where, where, which greenhouse we were visiting, but, um, it seemed to be more widespread, um, down there. And, and I, I do wonder if it's the, the, the similar design, but, um, it's really, uh, an amazing thing to watch because this is, this is a process that does require some bit of, of delicacy and these, you know, these little, Tiny baby plants are really small and delicate, and the machine's able to um, to identify them and and put them the right way up. And kind of this, you know, big mechanical arm puts them right in there uh, in the tray. And um, that is something. I mean, I've I've done that work before on farms, and it is incredibly repetitive, and <laughs> it's not the most fun thing to do. But it's really important for getting that little plant um, correctly. Uh, placed and with, a, you know, the right amount of soil around it. And so, um, I mean, that, that was an amazing thing to see. Um, and I, I understand that there's been other innovations like 
um, table movers and, and uh, little robots that will space out the pots um, in an area so they're all, you know, equally spaced and maximizing the the area. Um, and so, yeah, I, I don't know. I it, It's kind of amazing to see that. And then also that you've been able to retain uh, a workforce. You still have jobs for people, um, but they're maybe having to learn a higher degree of the technical side of things to oversee that because you can't just let the robot arm go wild. You have to have somebody who knows how it works and how to fix it. And um, so, uh, so yeah, I don't know if you want to talk about the, you know, the development of some of those technologies and how, uh, was it easy to incorporate? Was there pushback? You know, how, how did that go? I'd say on the first one, what you said about transplanting is very repetitive. So that's something our father looked at. Okay, this is a repetitive task that we don't want people to be doing over and over again. But what it really came down to as well, spring is our busy time of year. So, you know, we get everything planted and then we ship the first batch out. Well, what needs to happen the day we ship it, we need to be able to plant again. Well, what ends up ended up happening, all our people would be shipping, we'd have nobody to plant. So, and it takes 20 people to run a transplanting line. So dad came up with a machine that it took three, four years to get it right. Very, several different variations. You know, you, you know, the path to success is paved with failure. Mm-hmm. So there's a lot of failures that happened on the way with the transplanter, but he finally figured it out and got it working like it's supposed to. And it is widely adopted, like you said, in the greenhouse business now. And, and a lot of that automation, uh, believe it or not, we go to, we go to Europe to see a lot of automation because there automation is required because they get a lot less money for the product that we grow and they pay more for the labor than we do. So when it ends up happening, you have greenhouses that grow one item, one size pot, one plant, one item, but they learn how to do everything with as little uh, workers or employees as possible. So we look at what they're doing and go, okay, how can we incorporate that into what we're doing where we're planning you know, a hundred different pot sizes or varieties every year. Because Lowe's, Walmart, Depot, they're not going to sell one kind of pot and one kind of plant. They want everything. And they want that from one vendor is what they want. Mm-hmm. So yeah, I'd say what you said earlier, repetitiveness, that's what dad looked at. But it's also lack of employees, lack of the number of employees and number of seasonal employees that you need to get those jobs done. Yeah, and I'd say Margaret, adding to that, uh, we don't we don't take it over a cliff. This isn't the machine's always better than the person. It actually, is a very thoughtful process. Uh, and you mentioned one of them, these harvest automation robots. We've actually eliminated some of those over the last five years after investing in a very large number of them a few years back. And what happens? We brought the robots in, and they could not do it as consistently and as accurately as the people could. Uh, and so we've brought back the people into that one particular spacing element because uh, robots weren't as good as the people. Uh, I was at a Walmart, the newest Walmart distribution center in Dallas, Texas, about a month ago. They have all this technology to package items for direct to consumer, but they brought people back into the process and they talked about it. They said, we will never design a warehouse that's going to be completely automated to your point, Margaret. And so, you know, when people think about your line, I think we're trying to build a robot or a, uh, you know, any innovation for everything. And that's just not the case. We'll bring it in to see if it does better. And if it does, we invest to make it better. But we also are not too uh, proud to turn around and go, no, what? That was a task that that people actually did better because it takes a little more learning. Um, 
you know, people are always like scared of AI and scared of all these technologies. And and we, we try to teach our team is learn the technologies so you can be a part of that in the future. Don't don't be afraid of them. Learn them. Uh, I had a professor tell me one time, uh, you're not going to get replaced by AI. You're going to get replaced by someone who knows how to do AI. Uh, and I thought that was a pretty good line of how to look at technology, which is embrace and learn because you want to be part of that path, not be left behind by that path. I have another nuts and bolts question, just because, again, I'm at, in awe of the size of your operation. Uh, do you have your own in-house trucking to deliver plants or do you contract out with like multiple different businesses to ship plants? If you, if you look at that, we own 300 tra- or trailers. So the, you know, obviously the back end of the truck, uh, because we actually lock every cart into the trailer. So we have to have oh, holes drilled in them and all that. So the carts don't move. Uh, but we do contract most of the trucking out. We own a separate LLC that does trucking. We have about 20 trucks in it. We can keep those guys busy year round. But during the spring, when we're humming Monday through Saturday, we got a, up to 150 trucks a day going out of this location. And then we got 40 to 50 trucks going out a day at our York location. On top of that, we have a lot of contract growers that grow for us, and we're probably picking up 40 loads a day. So if you look at that, there's 240 trailers that could be on the road at any day on any day, either delivering product or picking up product here that we can deli- then deliver the next day. So yeah, logistics are a huge part of what we do. Yeah, and I think it's the uh, everything we do is direct store delivery. We're not going through the warehouses at Home Depot, Walmart, and Lowe's. We're going direct to their 1,700 locations that we ship to. Uh, and we drop plants off two to three times a week at most each one of those locations. Uh, so the ability to have a trucking fleet that can operate pretty consistently is very, very important. And those guys drop uh, the carts off, pick up the empty carts that now have the recycling on them. And it's just a full loop that's constantly happening then we have data analytics. We receive scan data from all, every one of those retailers every day by 4 or 5 a.m. And the team is spending the morning writing orders. And by that night, we're packing orders to deliver the following day. Uh, so you are trying to get it to the stores as fresh and as fast as possible. Again, another secret sauce of Metrolina is our logistics capability. doesn't get a lot of press that uh, robots do and analytics and, and some of the consumer stuff we do does. But that logistics ability to get product to stores as quickly as it's there to keep it fresh gives us a longer time to sell it when it is in the store. And do you um, sell to like what I would consider to be like local or regional retailers along with your um, you know, three big um, customers? Yeah, we, you know, we've kind of, you know, we do Sam's Club as well, but that's part of Walmart. Uh, we we would, if you can accept a tractor trailer, we will we will sell to you. But that, that you know, you got to have that part first. Uh, we don't right. have a box truck system. Everything rolls on a tractor trailer system, just logistically. I think Art and I have realized over the years, we can't be everything to everybody. And that's not a negative, that's a positive. Mm-hmm. Uh, and we'll have uh, regional folks call us. And we know a few of our partner growers that Art talked about, who like to sell to those uh, customers and they're built for that model to deliver, uh, you know, in smaller box trucks. And we, we, we send business their way pretty quickly. Uh, so yeah, it's, it's not our chic, but it's also, we, we believe a big part of the industry and we're there to allow our partner growers to help get some of that business too, for sure. Yep. I'm curious um, to hear a little bit about the research and development side of things. Um, so uh, the last interview that Tim and I recorded was with the Mount Cuba Center um, 
uh, trial director and Sam Hoadley, and he was talking about, you know, how they trial these plants and how they assess them and um, how they communicate that with homeowners who are interested in in those plants. And obviously, that's a much, much, much smaller, um, you know, scale operation. But, um, you know, I, I, I do wonder, how do you sort of keep your finger on the pulse of what a shopper at Walmart or Home Home Depot or Lowe's is going to want um, because, you know, plant preferences change. Um, people got really into plants over the pandemic. People got really into house plants. You know, they want certain colors. We've got the Pantone color of the year. That's really popular and stuff like that. How, how does that work? Do you contract that out to do trialing and evaluation and surveys or do you do that in-house? Uh, well, for me, it's really kind of a two-phase process. Uh, I'll go backwards and let Art talk to R&D at the end. I think that might be the best way to do it. But yes, uh, the number one way we know what consumers buy is through data. So that that's by far, you know, trends don't change as fast as the uh, magazines tell you they do. Uh, you know, uh, we actually, we don't chase what I call micro trends. Uh, they're still, we call it 95% of what we do every year is rinse and repeat. The, the opposite of that, though, is the 5% we do is innovation and growth. You won't grow if you keep doing the same thing every year because the same people are buying those same plants. And so our R&D team spends a lot of time in that. I'll let Art talk about our research gardens and the work we do there. But we start with a thing called a home garden panel. We actually have 2,000 consumers on an internet study group who we feed ideas to weekly, and they send us back feedback on those ideas. And we've actually partnered with about uh, 10 different breeders, some plastic manufacturers, some other folks, so everybody can be a part of that because we can't figure this innovation out ourselves. We're going to need plastic partners to figure out the right colors of the pots. We're going to need our breeder partners to know what they need to be working on three, five years down the road. Uh, unlike consumers want, we we can't like make uh, changes in a plant like overnight. It takes some time through innovation. So if we think trends are going toward more whites and reds versus from blues and purples, then we know to tell our breeder partners, hey, within this variety, we don't have a strong white. We need to be working on white because we're seeing consumers want that color and that genetic. So that's how we start it. And Art, you want to talk a little bit about once we do that, how they partner with us confidentially and then long-term in our public gardens. Yes. So like Abe said, we actually have two separate gardens and we started uh, ha having a test garden probably in the late 70s. And dad would plant, we'd we, Abe and I probably planted that garden several times ourselves uh, as as uh, teenagers, but we have a a public garden here where we trial all the different varieties because every breeder will come in and tell you, hey, I have the best geranium, I have the best calabricoa, I have the best lantana. Well, we want to put all those together in a garden and then grow them all the different varieties and see which one actually performs the best here. And then like Abe said, we have HGP, our home garden panel. So we'll have a public day here where we'll actually bring the public in and give them flags and then go, okay, go flag the plant that you like the best. And then we'll have our R&D or marketing team out there. Hey, why do you like that plant the best? Is it the color? Is it the shape? Is it, what is it? Or what combos do you like the best? And probably 10, 12 years ago, we started a confidential garden. So a lot of these breeders, they have plants that are going to come out three says five to seven years from now. Well, they need somewhere to test those and they want to test them in different parts of the country, not just doing them in California, but also doing them in Michigan and doing them in the South so they can see how that plant really reacts. So we have 17 different breeder partners that we work with. 
uh, and some of them have multiple gardens. So we have 17 confidential gardens that only they have the key to. So no other breeder can go in there. No retailer can go in there. Uh, we go in there and look at it to tell them what plant is doing the best. Uh, and that has worked very well on, you'll get a plant that'll be Begonia 7237. So it doesn't even have a name yet. It's just a number. Once they feel like it does very well, then they'll put a name to it and go, okay, this is something that we want to put out in the public. But they get three different zones that they're growing the same plant in just to see how it reacts. Because the last thing we want to do is put a plant in front of greenhouse owners that doesn't do well for them, but then ultimately that doesn't do well for the customer. If it doesn't do well for our end customer, nobody wins in that game. We, we need plants that perform for the customer. Yeah, and I, and I think part of that, we we don't kind of do the, hey, we brought six people around from the office and say, does you look good? That was the old way of doing it. Uh, <laughs> once these consumers flag this in our public garden, we then get video and pictures of this, and then we bring it in front of our 2,000-person internet group. It's the same uh, company that Coca-Cola and Proctor uses to judge items. It's called Qualtrics. And so this is high-level consumer analysis so in times in a public focus group or even a regular focus group, you can get a chat leader kind of pushing their agenda. With 2,000 consumers, we have a lot higher probability that if they like it, it'll be successful uh, there. But we don't put anything in front of consumers we don't think we can grow and that the breeders haven't been a part of. So it's this whole uh, cycle, Margaret, kind of long answer to your question. But it's not as simple as a few folks around the office come and look and say, that's pretty and we roll, or one focus group. It's a constant perpetual cycle of learning. And that's back to our automate or stagnate concept as an organization. Mm, yeah, I think that's why I I would fail as a as a plant trial director is because I'd be like, I like this one. So this is the one we're going to grow. <laughs> oh, we still get that input. Don't worry. There's no, there's no, there's, there's no shame in our facility. People love to tell us. Don't worry. <laughs> um, Usually marketing will bring something to me. And if I go, if they say, Hey, Art, what do you think about this idea? And I go, Ooh, that's a great idea. They don't do it. And I go, Ooh, that's a terrible idea. Then they, they take the number times four. Yeah, if you're if you're over fifty five, uh, white male, you don't get a lot of voice in our organization anymore. Unless that, that you're is leading. true. <laughs> <laughs> well, I as fit we're, that category. <laughs> as we're kind of wrapping up here, I guess that's just a final question um, before our actual final question. But to wrap up this part of the conversation, um, so you know, innovate or stagnate was your dad's um, saying, and so what what's next both for you guys and, and for this industry do you think like what's the either the next big thing or is it kind of you know um where do you go from here i guess yeah i think you know i think everybody wants to think what what's the next this uh and and i if i give you 50 years of the industry you know you go back and you say hey when, when we started doing uh the three letter words i call them upcs edi asn all this sort of tech that got in then we went from delivering on uh, trucks to delivering on carts to the stores. Then once it got to the stores, we found out 10 years later, we have to merchandise that product because the stores don't take care of themselves. So that was a big innovation. Then 10 years after that, it was about data analytics and understanding where things are going. After that is this consumer thing we're working on right now. Uh, so so it goes through various phases and everything. Uh, logistics is a part of that too. So I, I look at that as big subjects we got to tackle. And I believe in the next 10 years, it's going to be metrics, scorecards, and analytics. Uh, this business is not going to get easier. 
Uh, you're going to have to learn how to sell more of what you grow and sell and, and, and not lose as much in the growing process. And you can't do that just because you're smart. You do that through analytics. Uh, we call it predictive analytics, a little bit of what AI talks about. But we now know when it's 72 and sunny that we're going to do a 32% comp. We also know when it's 68 and raining a little bit, we'll do a negative four. We have Because the last 10 times that happened, it all fit within about a one-point difference. 10 years ago, the buyer would be like, it's going to rain this week and don't ship me any product. And reality, no, does it rain at night or rain during the day? So just these predictive analytics, I believe, is where things are. It's not to make it boring. Art and I find predictive analytics to be exciting, all the way from how many uh, trays on a cart can we load in 10 minutes? How many plants on a line can we do this? Just allowing ourselves to scorecard in a very transparent way that our teams know about. And that's not, I like Bob better than Sarah and he works harder. It's like, no, let's put some analytics behind it and figure out where it's at. Hmm. Right. And I, and I look at our business that, you know, like we talked about at the very start, when dad started, mom and dad started, they said, okay, if we could get 12 acres, they would have been one of the biggest greenhouses in America in the mid seventies, if that would have happened. Uh, today, like Abe talked about, where we're adding on 13 acres at a time is what we're doing. So we might do that every other year, but we're doing that. So we're our industry right now. Uh, there's not a lot of new people getting our, into our industry. Uh, we're like every other industry, whether it was Coke and Pepsi or Ford and Chevrolet or whatever it may be. You you ended up getting very big growers that could take care of stores because. What Walmart doesn't want to do and what Lowe's doesn't want to do in Depot, they don't want to have to deal with 16 different vendors to supply all their product. They'd much rather uh, you know, get with one or two suppliers, three suppliers around the country, and to be able to take care of all that because it's just less work on them to make sure that it gets done. Number one, it's less work. But number two, the consistency of the plants throughout the throughout the stores are much more similar and that's what they're looking for. So I see a lot of consolidation happening in our business. Not that there's going to be fewer greenhouses. There's just going to be greenhouse, a lot of greenhouses that will fall under one umbrella. And that's what we have today with 58, 59 different partner growers. We don't own them, but they grow for us. These four and five acre greenhouses, it's, it's much to what Abe said about UPCs and EDI and ASN. We understand what those words mean and what, the, what, those, what those things uh, are going to take to get done. But for a four or five acre greenhouse to grow 80 different items for a Lowe's, a Walmart or Depot is very difficult for them to make money. But if we contract with them and say, hey, grow these two items, these three items, it's something they can make good money doing and it's something they can get very good at. So that, that's where I see the industry going over the next five to 10 years. Yeah, I think we both agree. There's not going to be less growers. It's just changing the way growers grow and how, who they sell it to and what have you. Uh, you know, and, and that's just kind of where the industry is. And it's just like everything else. If you're not staying on that track, you're going to fall behind it. So just it, it's these partner growers we have. Uh, they range anywhere art from 100 acres to one acre, uh, but they grow particular crops very well. So that specialization of the industry, a little bit of what you see in Europe is what you'll probably see a little more in the U.S., Margaret, on, on that level, I think. Hmm. Yeah, that makes a lot of sense. Um, so we really appreciate you guys coming on to talk about the business. Uh, we always end our conversations with the same question of our guests, which is what do you like to do when you're not working? Well, we, we've been taught as uh, uh, farmers that you work all the time, number one. No, <laughs> So we definitely have that in us. Uh, we both live 
across the street or behind a facility. So even as large <laughs> facilities, my mom's home, my home and arts homes are all within walking distance. So it, I appreciate you asking that question because we've got to force ourselves to do other things sometimes, <laughs> uh, you know, but, but for me, uh, you know, a couple of passions I have, I've, I've done it for 25 years. I love to coach kids sports, mainly kids basketball, because I couldn't figure out how to do coach pitch kind of involve me doing something, but I enjoy watching people learn and, and, and the kids sports, you can watch people learn so quickly. And a lot of the leadership uh, traits you have to do in coaching uh, can be transferred to business. And and I always like kind of testing stuff on the kids and then bringing it to the business, if you will. Uh, But, but always enjoyed that. Even if my kids have aged up uh, and they don't have their kids yet, Art and I are coaching our our cousin or our uh, nephews and nieces kids. So uh, it's just, I just really enjoy doing that. Uh, and I'm a big fan of music too. Probably not the same music art likes, but I'm a, but no, I've always got the only time I don't have music playing is like one of the, during these podcasts here, because <laughs> it'd be just too much in the background, but a big fan of concerts and uh, things of that nature too. Nice. Yeah, my favorite statement, Dave, is turn that down. It's too loud. <laughs> uh, and, uh, and I would say my uh, my passion outside of work, because Abe and I are both here on weekends. We live around the place. So you don't want to say your only passion is work, but uh, I enjoy woodworking. Uh, I enjoy building things for people, building stuff for myself and things like that. And then uh, you know, Abe and I still, believe it or not, we still play in a basketball league. We're actually on the same team this year okay. together. And two of my sons play on that. Uh, one of Abe's sons has subbed a couple of times. That, that's a ton of fun to be able to play sports with your kids. Uh, you know, I, it sounds dumb, but I get way more joy out of watching my kids or Abe kids succeed at sports than I ever did succeeding myself. That that brings you, it brings you so much more joy to see those that are close to you succeed in things. So that that's that's what I enjoy doing. I'm also a little bit of a pickleball player. I do I'm starting Ooh. to get a little bit of an obsession with that, but you know, th- those are the things that I like doing, doing away from work. Oh, nice. Well, I'm glad that you both, um, despite uh, probably having work in your field of vision at all times, um, have managed to uh, to um, have some time to do other things and, and connect with family and be outside and play sports. It's all great stuff. Um, Art and Abe, thank you again for coming on the podcast. It's been really interesting to hear about um Metrolina greenhouses, the scale of it, um, the innovations, how you guys operate. Um, so thank you. Thank you so much. Appreciate right, you having awesome. us on. Yeah, thanks, thanks, Tim and Margaret. Uh, happy to do it anytime. Appreciate it. Thanks. All right. Take care. Thanks, Appreciate Ryan. it.